Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. Okay, great. I'm um, excited today. We're going to do something a little different. I'm here with Lindsay Devino, the business broker out in Las Vegas. How are you doing today? I am great. I'm oh, great. Awesome. So before we kind of jump into uh, actually going through a deal, wanted to kind of get your background and how you got into business brokerage. Yeah. So I uh, actually started about 10 years ago in commercial real estate. I started out as a commercial property manager doing uh, property management and a bit of leasing. And uh, during that process, I came across a lot of people who were interested in buying and selling their businesses, and I would handle the assignment process of it. And on occasion, I, I worked with different business brokers, some that were you know, better than others. And um, so kind of just kept going down that path. And Cool, and was yeah. that out here in the Las Vegas area? It was, yes. Nice. I've, I've managed properties all across the US, but the change was made out in Las Vegas here, yes. Okay, and so how long ago was that? Uh, so 2020, so okay. really, really uh, made a big change during COVID, and I'm going to say probably the best career move I've ever made in my in my life. That's so, great, yeah, so. it's, a, it's definitely an interesting uh, business. You, you learn a lot, uh, you deal with a lot, so sure it uh you know property management is also a difficult industry but maybe you got uh used to doing it too much maybe a little bored so this will never ever let you get bored oh so no definitely not yeah so what's your favorite part so far working in business brokerage it sounds so simple but i i really love helping people as a property manager that was something i was able to do but oftentimes you would get that call when someone was in crisis mode you mm. know with the late rent or or a leaky roof that's ruining a dinner service at their restaurant and it becomes a bit of a thankless job and i was just looking for something that i could feel more accomplished at the end of the day I could feel really like i was helping small business owners and i saw this as a great vehicle to be able to do that yeah, it's a pretty cool industry when you when you really break it down and see how, you know, it, buyers and sellers all have a different reason for why they're buying or selling and a lot of times you're you're, you know, completing a transaction that is is have both sides end up being happy about which doesn't always happen in sales or anything else. So it's, it's a pretty cool industry. So yeah, cool. Well, I'm glad you found it. We can definitely talk about uh, a little bit um, your leasing background when we get there. So something I wanted to try and hopefully the listeners can kind of bear with us as it's not a super easy scripted thing to run through, but uh, I wanted to kind of go through a listing and, and just kind of walk through the numbers. Uh, we'll do the best we can to try to keep it confidential, but at the same time, uh, really give people an idea of how you list a business and then also how a lender uh, looks at it from, from their side as far as uh, providing financing. So this loan closed uh, about probably eight, nine months ago, middle of 2022. It was a, a business that was in the pest control space, um, primarily in, I believe, was it Henderson, Vegas area? Like pretty much the whole yeah, area. Yeah, Southern Nevada, yes. Okay. You know, you started off uh, like a lot of the brokers do, reach out to to me as a lender or an SBA lender and say, hey, I've got this listing coming up or maybe it's already on the market, uh, you know, go ahead and take a look at the numbers and, and let me know what you think if I've priced it in a, in a way that would be able to sell or what type of things can we look at. So um, you're able to send it over. So we could kind of walk through the numbers there and, and try to determine 
um, you know, how you came up with the numbers and then also how the bank looked at it. So I'll kind of start and I'll walk through some of the numbers on uh, your market price analysis. So normally what you do as a broker, um, you know, maybe you could kind of tell us what, what a market price analysis is, or a lot of people call it an MPA. Some people call it a SIM. There's, there's lots of different things. So maybe you could just kind of explain what actually is for everybody. Yeah. So uh, this is in a, my opinion of the value of the business. It's not a business appraisal. Um, it, is, it is looking at the financial performance of the business. It's looking at um, comps, for the business, so businesses that have, have sold and closed with SBA loans over the last several years. And then I'm also looking at the operations of the business because that's going to play into the eventual uh, suggested sales price that I'm going to do. So I typically ask for the last three full years of tax returns and the supporting P&Ls for that. Um, and I have this great tool that the agency that I work with has provided uh, that I'm able to basically go in and plug in numbers and uh, it's, it's broken down very easily about what the bankers add backs are. So, you know, try to figure out the meat of behind things. They got to add back the amortization, depreciation, um, taxes, the owners, if they're taking a W-2 salary, can add back one owner salary, health insurance, things of that nature. Um, and then those other more discretionary spending items that people will do as business owners. You know, for example, if you have a home office, you have the option, you know, to be able to include that as your business expense to reduce your income and so on. So um, I kind of dig into that and get to what we call the seller's discretionary earnings. So what's the what's the true net income of the business? What's the business owner walking away with at the end of the year? We do that over over a three year period. Yeah, so it's a great tool to kind of plug in the numbers from the financials. Um, gives a, a buyer and it obviously gives you as a broker uh, the opportunity to sit down with a seller and explain what, uh, you know, it's it's kind of spitting out what the value of the business is. So definitely a lot different than looking at real estate and just having comparable sales based on square footage and the age of the property and all of that. It's really down to the numbers. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand is with small business, it's truly based on the seller's discretionary earnings. It's not based on the revenue. It's not based on equipment, inventory, all of those things. It's it's really truly based on you know what is the buyer going to get if they buy the business. So what we can do on this is uh, do the best we can. We'll go through kind of the numbers that were mm -hmm. on your uh, MPA here. So we'll just use the the last two years, which was 2020 and 2021. So. Um, you had used the accrual-based uh, financial statements. So real quick explanation, uh, the difference between accrual and cash. Accrual uh, essentially means that you are recognizing a sale when it is made. Uh, same with an expense that is owed. So oftentimes you'll have a receivable or a payable that is due. So you're making the sale and you're waiting to be paid on it. On cash basis, you're recognizing the sale when you collect the cash. So a big majority of business owners are going to operate on a accrual basis because it gives them an idea of what's you know what sales they've made and then what their money they're owed and what they are owe, um, owing you know on their payables. But then when they file their tax returns, they will convert it to a cash basis accounting because it oftentimes will lower their net income, which ultimately <laughs> lowers their taxable income. So of course, one of the the main reasons people 
start a business, buy a business, or go into business is to uh, you know find a way to oftentimes limit their tax liability. So from your market price analysis, uh, you used accrual-based financial statements, which is really an accurate way to kind of show uh, a buyer what the business is going to look like. Now, as a lender operating as an SBA lender, we are required to use the tax returns. So when they file them on a cash basis, then we're required to use that. So oftentimes it can differ a little bit. So what we can do is kind of go through them and then see, um, you know, on the ad backs and stuff as well. So for 2020, the top line revenue was just under 800,000, about 771. And their bottom line net income was 160,000. For 2021, top line revenue jumped you know, nicely to a million 229. Their bottom line net income was 310,000. Now remember, this is just the net income that is pulled off of the financials. So then with your MPA, one thing I really like is it kind of shows uh, the quote-unquote bankers addbacks, which is nice. So uh, what you've really done is kind of break out the addbacks that the bank is going to accept. So you went over a couple of those, obviously depreciation, amortization, um, you know, the officer salary. So kind of gives uh, a buyer and it gives you the idea this is what the bank's going to accept. Everything else after that, uh, maybe you could touch on one or two things that uh, you know are often requested to be an ad back or that you would include as an ad back that a bank might. Um, I'll give you one example that that we normally kind of see is auto expense. Sometimes we will add that back, sometimes we won't. Ultimately, the the question becomes: Is an auto required for the business? If it's uh, you know a company that's like a man in a truck and they're out doing electrical work or something, then they probably need a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And a buyer is also going to have that same expense. Now, if they're leasing a, their car and they're driving it, you know, mainly for personal use, then we're probably going to add it back because they don't necessarily need it. So, um, you know, a good example of that would be a restaurant. Mm -hmm. The owner of a restaurant doesn't necessarily need. Uh, an auto, unless maybe they're doing a lot of catering or something like that. But for the most part, you get the idea. If if there's a car out there that uh, is really just driven as their personal and they're expensing it, then we're going to add it back. So I don't know, maybe you could kind of give us a, a couple add backs that you often uh, are asked to add back. Um, maybe some of them are a little outrageous. Um, but yeah, something that you would assume that the bank typically will not add back. Well, one example I would like to use would be with restaurants. Um, sometimes you might buy some of your household food from, you know, a, a, a restaurant food supplier um, and the seller will want to add that back. And the banks are, aren't going to recognize that you can't go through invoices to point out, OK, oh, this bag of flour was for my house and that you, you've already benefited from being able to do that. You're unfortunately not going to be able to benefit from it here. What I'll tell people is if you want me to add something back at the bottom, you need to be prepared to prove why it is an add back if a buyer or their banker asks for any details on it. So I try to be more conservative than not, but you do get some sellers that are very insistent about it. Um, maybe a family member who's being paid to, to put up an Instagram post every so often, but when you look at what they're getting paid, it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's probably a good add back. Um, 
yeah. you know, things along those lines. I've actually had somewhere they say, well, that's my wife's salary and that's my girlfriend's salary. And I'm like, oh. okay, yeah, that's not, <laughs> well, we can probably add it back because they're probably both not going to be there after you sell the business. But yeah, we get, we get a lot of funny, interesting ones. So um, kind of getting back into these numbers. So 2020, if, if you know, everybody recalls it was 770 on the top line, net income was 160,000. They had depreciation of 45,000, um, interest 8,900, and then 40,000 on the officer's salary. Also took out the officer's payroll tax. Sometimes we include that, sometimes we don't. Um, a lot of times what I will do is just look at essentially the net income, officer's salary, and then any normal addbacks of depreciation amortization. If I can get the cash flow to work on that, then I know we're good and I don't really dig too much further. So adding all of those together, you'd have about $100,000 in additional addbacks for 2020, which would bring it to about 260,000. Now, you know, normally you would kind of stop there and say, does it work? Yeah, we could probably get there. Does, if we figured out the monthly payment of a loan, would it work, um, you know, being able to be paid back with that number? And so a lot of times that's, that's what I'll do as a banker is just look at that and say, are we good? Now, the, the thing that's nice on your MPA is that it also has some of the other addbacks that we were talking about. So on this one did have meals and entertainment. Sometimes we'll add that as well. But again, a lot of times what I'm trying to do is say, hey, does it work? Yeah. Okay. I don't need to dig for something else. You know, it's nice to have the other things because it just makes it stronger and makes it look better. But if it's uh, maybe a little questionable and I don't have to kind of fight or dig for the information, then I won't. Um, another one, there was rent. We added back rent on here. Do you remember why we added back the rent on here? It, it had to do with their personal home. Okay. So, so yeah. So if they were, uh, you know, renting an office or something personally or even throwing in their home rent um, into the sales, um, into the expenses, which we do see from time to time. If they can validate that and prove it to us, then we'll usually add it back as well. And again, what you had said, you ask the seller, can you actually prove this to me? <laughs> um, because then I'll look at adding it back. So they had about 28,000 in, um, in rent add back and about almost about 7,000 in meals and entertainment. Had a couple other small things, promotional meals. There was a, looks like travel meals um, and then some utilities from home office. So once we added the, or you added the additional items back for 2020, we got all the way down to 301,000 for seller's discretionary earnings. So if you kind of recall, 160 was the net income. Once we added back kind of the normal bankers add backs, we got to 260 and then all the way down to 301,000. So not a huge jump, but you know, good enough. So now in 2021, using a lot of the same um, items or the same ad backs, we had 1.2 million, a little over 1.2 million in revenue. Their net income was 310,000. The interest was 4,600. We had 30,000 for a non-working family member. So normally we're okay with doing that. Um, or even sometimes we have a spouse that's not under the officer's compensation on the financial statements. If we can get a W-2 for them, we can see that it's truly their spouse and they're not going to be staying on to the business. We'll usually add it back as well. So you had that in the banker's addbacks and then another 40,000 for the actual owner, just like the year before. So bringing it to 391. So 
pretty good healthy jump from from the year before of 260. Now adding in a couple of the other items with travel entertainment, uh, rent for the home, and then some travel meals, um, we got all the way to 439. So pretty big jump. So then normally from there, maybe kind of walk me through, you would take that number mm -hmm. and then what, what do you use to come up with the, the, the value? Yeah, so um, I use a service called Pure Comps uh, where I can pull comps for businesses that have uh, closed transactions with the SBA. And I'll use that as, I guess you'd call it the, the cream of the crop type comps that I can use. And then we look at some, what we would call multiple adjustments. So what are some variables that buyers are going to look like in helping to assess how risky that this business is, is to buy? Um, a lot of sellers love to ask me on the phone during our first calls, you know, well, what's my business worth? What's the, what's the rule of thumb multiple for my business? And I, I hate saying that because you give them that number and it gets in their head, but really what a multiple is, it all comes back to, it's, it's an assessment of that buyer's uh, assessment of risk for that business. So I can say a three time multiple, which is maybe what it says on here, but if the seller is a very active owner and there's no general manager or the employees, there's a lot of turnover, they haven't been in business very long, that three times multiple starts getting shaved down and down and down because the business is more and more risky. So I look at the big picture overall with that and do the math there that might decrease those multiples and we come up with the suggested listing price. Yeah, so so with peer comps, um, it's essentially if you want to kind of translate it and understand it like real estate, it goes and pulls the comparable sales. So if uh, there was another pest control business that had sold with uh you know maybe a little bit of a, a close to the same amount of top line revenue and seller discretionary earnings and it's been more of a recent sale you can see what it was recorded as sales at sold at um, with a number that you would multiply times the seller's discretionary earnings so a lot of people just will throw out two and a half times three times four times if you're on shark tank it's a hundred times <laughs> um you know so uh it looks like with what you ended up using was just under three times um was kind of what what you got out of all the comparables so you know using that and then also uh there's there's different ways of using which number you would use for the seller's discretionary earnings a lot of times it's the most recent year end Sometimes it's a, a ratio of the last two years, three years, an average. Also, we'll often take into consideration how they're doing during the that year. So, for example, right now being, you know, uh, we're a couple months into to 2023, we would definitely use year-end 2022, look at how did they do compared to 2021. And then, you know, another month or two from now, we'll start getting their financials from 2023 which then can kind of show the trends. So all of that gets factored in. There's no magical, uh, just grab a three out of the sky and <laughs> come up with it. But on this one, it looks like used right around a three times multiple. Mm -hmm. With this industry, I just want to add there with this industry, it's a, a little bit different because there are the big players in the pest control industry will gobble up the yes. smaller guys at a multiple that is maybe a little bit bigger than the average person's willing to pay because they know that 
they can save money on a lot of the expenses by having the volume. So we were also trying to take into account that that could have been a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if you and, and you're seeing that a lot in the industry right now with private equity coming down into the really, really low, mm-hmm. uh, smaller businesses where normally they, you know, had their nose in the air and were staying on the on the big deals. And now they're starting to come down into to kind of some of the more of the stuff you see. So a lot of times when when they're looking at it, um, most people would call that a strategic acquisition. And really what that means is there are a lot of times looking at the top line revenue. They will look at the seller's discretionary earnings, but they can immediately say, I no longer need a bookkeeper. I no longer need a customer service person. I no longer need a building to operate out of, so on and so forth. And they can eliminate those expenses. So for an example, if we took $400,000 in SDE here for 2021, they might look at that and say, okay, so three times multiple would be, you know, 1.2 million, but they might look at it and say, I can knock off another $200,000 in expenses because I don't need, you know, those employees or whatever. So now you're bumped up to 600,000, even if you use the same multiple, now they're willing to pay 1.8 because to them, that's what it's worth, right? So a lot of people I feel get caught up in that when they look at big M&A transactions. And what they're not realizing is to us, when we look at it, we say, well, that company's barely, you know, turning a profit and you're going to buy them at such a huge amount of money. But what they're not understanding is when you remove all of those expenses, they're still buying them at a normal multiple, but it's just the multiple when it comes to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a great, great thing to point out. Then what I'll do is I'll kind of like go through uh, the tax returns and the numbers that we ended up using. So for, for the loan on here. So for us, when, when we were looking at it, um, we'll pull, you know, directly from the tax return, which again, remember they're on cash basis. Uh, some of them were we're pretty close to uh, kind of the revenue, but then so a lot of times the net income will change a little mm-hmm. bit. So um, on this one, we actually had very similar on the top line revenue, but then with the net income, it was a little bit different. So the bottom line that we ended up coming up with, we're still using the rent, the interest, depreciation, amortization, the officer's compensation. The bottom line that we ended up coming up with is going to be a little bit different because we also would factor in if the buyer needs a salary. So when we were looking at it, the amount that we were using was about 250000 280000 for 2020. When we look at, at your numbers, you're at 300000 Not a huge difference. And then with 2021, we used about... 375, 350, and we're at 430. So again, not a huge difference. Um, so then what we're going to do as a lender from that, that point is we're going to subtract um, any officer salary that the buyer is going to need. Now, not every buyer needs a salary. We actually love when we get the deals and they have like another business or uh, maybe a spouse that can cover all of the, the expenses as long as the spouse is willing to be on the loan with them. And then we'll factor in their income. So really what we're going to do is we're going to look and say how much of their personal expenses are covered by another source of income other than the business they're buying. So in this case, when you looked at it, they actually needed to pull out about $50,000. So we were able to pull out the $50,000 from 
the seller's discretionary earnings that we were using. And then we also took out a little bit for taxes because as the buyer buys it, what they're going to end up with, they're still going to have a little bit of tax. And ultimately what we're doing as a bank as well, when we're looking at the taxes, we're kind of stress testing it and saying, hey, the interest rates go way up, you know, or the economy slows down. How are they going to do? Are they going to be okay? All right. So we're okay there. So then what we do is we would figure out the loan amount. Now on this one, um, if I remember correctly, we did a, a little bit of a seller carry. Um, I think the buyer put down 10%, seller carried 9% of the purchase price, um, and they did for three years a 6% interest rate. So then what we would do is we would figure out the loan payments for the loan to the bank and then also the loan to the seller. We'd add them together, multiply it by 12, and then we would essentially look at the numbers that the business is producing after taking out the, the expenses for the buyer um, and some taxes and make sure there's enough income there to pay back the loan. So when we do that, and we, we would come up with, uh, let's see, the total amount for the debt service was 212000 a year. So that was the payments that they were going to pay on the loan. So if you remember right, taking out just a little bit. So 2020, they were almost right at breaking even. So they'd be able to pay us back, but wouldn't have anything left. But 2021, they were doing much better. So when we do it, they would actually be able to not only pay us back, but have about $90,000 extra. Now, remember, this is using the banker's advacs and the cash basis tax returns. So with SDE um, on your MPA, it probably would actually be doing a little bit better, mm -hmm. but we felt comfortable with it on this one. So for us, using our numbers, if you used the MPA um, numbers for the SDE off the accrual-based financials, you're at just under three times multiple. But if we figured out the multiple based on um, what the numbers we were using, it was about 3.4 times. So it was a little bit higher. And then ultimately, when we did the appraisal on it, it ended up being about 3, 3.3, 3.4 times, um, uh, kind of a mix between the two. So mm -hmm. right in the middle of the two. So at the end of the day, you priced it accurately. It, it came in, the appraisal came in where it needed to be. And you also had um, a, a buyer that was buying it at a fair price. We also include a little bit of working capital um, on there. So... Um, if anybody's kind of listening, trying to figure out the debt service, um, it'd be a little bit higher because we included working capital as well. So not a uh, easy thing to, to cover in a couple minutes, um, but at least it gives people kind of an idea of how we, how we look at things. On this one, if I remember right, I don't think we had too many challenges. And then there was, uh, if I recall correctly, the buyer was moving or was kind of going back and forth. So we had to make sure that they'd have somebody that can really help operate the business. So we took that into consideration. We always take into consideration their expenses, their outside income, their credit, all that stuff. So everything ended up working out well on yeah. this deal. So it good, was good buyers, good sellers. It was a pleasant transaction to work on. It got a lot of interest because it was priced right, priced competitively. I mean, and throughout the process of it being an escrow, I had a lot of people that were very <laughs> interested, but it was a, it was a good listing and I was happy to work on it.
Yeah, it was great. So, you know, just a, uh, a kind of a, a roundabout uh, example. Obviously, every deal is going to be a little different, but hopefully it gives listeners an idea of how we you know, actually look at things and then also how a broker looks at things so they, they can better understand when they're out shopping or looking to sell. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, if you're looking to sell, it's always best to talk to a broker, you know, have them run these numbers. And if they're not using something like this, to come up with the numbers, find another broker. <laughs> yes, definitely. Don't yeah. don't rely on the rules of thumb that you find on the internet or anything like that. Talk to a professional. Yeah, and I'd also say, uh, you know, another thing that I know you're really good about, you get sellers that say, oh, well, I'm only selling if I can sell for this number. Um, I've, I've heard you do it. I know you're really good at it. You, you maybe tell us what, what do you normally tell them when you go into to talk about listing the business? Well, you know... People want a certain amount of money, but they're coming to me because they want to sell their business. So you can get an extraordinary amount of money if you are willing to wait a very long time for the absolute perfect ideal buyer who thinks exactly the way that you do, or you can price it correctly and more people are willing to, to take a look at it. I'm in the business of selling businesses. I'm not in the business of listing businesses. So I'm a firm believer in pricing it right. The first time, if we're in the same ballpark, I will absolutely work with the seller because it's their prerogative on what they want to list their business for. But ultimately, it's the buyers that are going to dictate how much they're going to pay for it. And I like to encourage sellers, um, you know, if, they, if I start to get pushback on the price that I came up with, I remind them, these are your numbers that you provided, you know, and the ad backs that we went through, the comps that I found and details about how you're running your business. It's it's pretty hard to argue with that. If you want more than what I'm suggesting, then I really think that we should work together over the next year or two, get you in touch with people who can help make that a reality. Uh, and you'll know in the next six months or so if, if that's going to be realistic or not. Uh, and then just look at what's on the market right now. You're going to find that small businesses are going to be listed in a, a certain range of multiples. And if you want to list your business at, let's say, a, a five or a six time multiple and you're an active owner, you're going to have people scroll right past that listing and not even take a look at it, even if even if your mentality of asking for more is, you know, I want a starting place for negotiations. They're going to negotiate down. Well, they're not even going to inquire about the listing if yeah. you're priced so much higher. You know, do it right the first time and stand firm on it if that's what you want. Yeah, you know? some great, great advice. You know, and, it, and at the end of the day, you're not wasting anyone's time. So it yeah. makes sense. It's not I, everyone's right, ready to sign, uh, sign a listing right then and there. You know, sometimes that just means if they're looking for more, that they, they need to spend more time on their business. Yeah. And, and again, if they're searching out a broker, you want a broker that'll tell you the truth, like, like that, not somebody who says, oh, you want $4 million? Okay, cool. Let's go. Yeah. You know, yeah, they need to be able to break it down and explain, you know, why it is at that value so that they understand that when... If they're really wanting to sell, they're going to get a buyer who is reasonable. They're going to end up buying it for what it's worth, not yeah. what they think it's worth. Um, I think one of the funniest things I ever heard a broker say is to somebody when they said, yeah, this is what I listed for. And they said, well, everybody always thinks their kids are cuter than they are. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, um, I just kind of laughed and I said, well, that does that does sound about right because you know everybody thinks their business is better than it is. So uh, it's the potential. Yeah. It's the potential. I'm like, right. I, I understand. Like this multiple is 
that's your potential, that you're going to continue to be as, as good as you have been. They're taking a risk on that. There's no guarantee you're going to be as good as right. ha ha you've been. And, and the potential that you're talking about, why have you not realized that potential just yet? Yeah. And if it is there, why are you selling? I mean, those are, those are valid questions to ask. And, um, and I also want to add one of the, one of the main things that I'll talk to sellers before I do this analysis, before you tell me anything, I, I don't want to know what you think your business is worth. And I don't want to know what someone else has told you what your business is worth. I, I should be able to give you my fair, honest opinion of the value. If you start telling me what you want, you run the risk of a broker kind of playing around with the weighing of the numbers and the ad backs and this and that in order to get the listing. And guess what? At the end of the day, you're probably looking at the price I'm going to tell you anyway. So. I, think that's, I think that's a great approach. So, All right. So shifting gears a little bit. Um, definitely wanted to also bring you on to to talk about how to deal with landlords. So you have some really good experience um, coming from property management. Probably the biggest headache in the last year and a half, two years has been dealing with landlords. You know, when somebody's buying a business, they oftentimes are buying also, you know, into the location they're at and they got to take over a lease. So oftentimes you've got to sit down with the landlord. So Maybe you could kind of give us like a, a brief understanding of how that transaction often goes and then, you know, maybe some advice on on what you would expect since you've worked with landlords in the past. Yeah. So um, being the person that, that I was the person who would oftentimes approve these on behalf of my landlords, I, I think I have a good sense for not what every landlord is looking for. There are there are outliers out there, but I try to prepare my buyers and the sellers for what it is like to deal with the landlords. So when I'm doing a listing you have to get the entire lease document. That means the original lease, any amendment, any assignment, all of them fully executed. An unsigned lease document isn't worth anything to me, to be honest with you, um, because things may have changed between that copy and the final copy. And as a broker, at least in, in this state of Nevada, being a licensed state, it's my duty to read through that and you know, give a heads up to my seller on some things that might come up. For example, sellers are oftentimes a guarantee, a guarantor on their lease, and they may not be relieved of that uh, responsibility when they sell their business. And so that's something that I like to point out to them, um, because rather than at the closing table when they're saying, well, I'm not going to be a guarantor. Well, you've already agreed to be a guarantor when you signed the original lease. So there's all sorts of things like that. Um, there's leases that I've uh, read that have said that the business um, uh, that the landlord can turn down an assignment request for any reason, no need to explain it, any reason given. There are leases that have said if you submit an assignment request, it's the landlord's could be the landlord's prerogative to um, basically cancel that lease and put in a new tenant. That's that's out there. So you need to read your lease before you sell it. It doesn't mean go and talk to the landlord about before you go and decide to try to list it for sale, but read the lease because that's going to have the rules for that process already written out there. And the same thing for buyers. Um, a lot of people sign stuff because they're excited. They're excited to get into this business and the lease is an afterthought. It can't be an afterthought. It's going to govern a lot about your business over the coming years. And you should understand what you're agreeing to and ask questions if you don't understand. If there's something in there that is just terrifying, you either got to decide, are we going to negotiate it out or can you live with it? Yeah, some go. some great, uh, powerful advice. I feel like a a lot of the the brokers don't understand the lease side of it and um 
they kind of just say, well, yeah, we have to sign the lease. Let, let's yeah. you know work on it. So it's great to um, make sure that you're you're looking at that oftentimes before you're even listing it. So you understand what the seller is going to go through. You understand that the business is even something you can sell. Because at the end of the day, like you just said, if there's a clause in there that says they can terminate the lease if you ask for an assignment or they're never going to assign it, then they either have to figure out, okay, can the buyer get a whole brand new lease? Or if they go to sell the business, are they stuck and they're not able to sell it because they can't get assigned to someone else? They're going to kick them out. Buyer's going to have to move the business. So yeah, you bring up some great points that um, I think a lot of a lot of people don't think about. So thank yeah. you for that. Another thing I wanted to, to discuss as well is um, being a woman in the industry. Um, I was really excited when you agreed to come on the show because I wanted to bring somebody on that was a, a big hitting broker that was also a woman. Cause I feel like that's a lot of things that we need to talk about, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, it's not, um, something that is extremely common in the industry. So maybe you could kind of cover, you know, is it, do you feel like it's an advantage or a disadvantage? I think there's some yin and yang to, to that. Yes, it does have its advantages at times. Certain industries, you know, are more woman centric. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I go into list those businesses, I can have, you know, a different conversation uh, with those business owners. And, you know, for example, a hair salon, you mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of women hair salon owners that are out there. And um, I, I might be able to have a different conversation with them than than someone else. Um, but on the flip side, there's industries out there that are still very male centric, and they might want to deal with someone who has that background, maybe is a little bit more looks like them. And, uh, and on those times, it's like, well, okay, I'm not the right person for you. That's okay. There's a there's a spot for me somewhere. So there's there's definite pros and cons to to being a woman, but overall, I'd say there's a lot more advantages. Well, good, yeah. What would you say is probably the biggest challenge for women wanting to get into the business brokerage industry? Ah, uh, I mean, it can be a little intimidating at first if you go on some of the business brokerage websites and you just start scrolling through pictures and you start, well, boy, these people look older, they look more experienced, and you start reading their bios, and maybe they just have a just a different background than you. Um, and I would say just look inward and and see what do you have that sets you apart because every everyone out there has something that they can bring to the table i mean spirit of being upfront I've, I've never owned a business before and some might say how can you sell a business if you've never owned a business well that leasing background that i have I, gives me an advantage that's what sets me apart so you just have to find what is your advantage there's uh, a, a woman that works in our office who's got a great background in food and beverage industry and she's she's killer in that so you know it not owned a restaurant but yeah, you know, it's very familiar with is, them. Yeah. It's what... So you just have to find find what you're good at, develop it, and and become the best that you can at it. And that will that will get you in. Well, good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you know, you you feel strong about women coming into the industry, and you know, and some great advice. So yeah, there's um, a lot of great resources out there with the IBBA and and different organizations, the National Association of Women's Business Owners. I just say if it's something that, you know, feeling a little nervous, get connected with them and, and see what resources that are out there. Because there's a lot of other women that want to champion younger women, you know, business women, business owners who are looking to get into business brokerage. They want to see more women in the field. Yeah, so. that's great. Hopefully we'll have some more. Yeah. OK, so we didn't talk uh, a lot about the buyer side. You know, when when buyers approach you or and are calling about a listing or 
wanting to, you know, inquire about something you have listed, what's a piece of advice that you would give them? This is going to sound a little strange, but be, be realistic mm -hmm. with what you're looking for. Um, I, I get a lot of calls and emails from buyers that pretty much want to be investors. And I'm not talking about the private equity groups of the world. I'm mm -hmm. talking about just the normal average Joe and Jane out there that have another job and they're just looking for supplemental income. And maybe they used to invest in residential real estate and with the eviction moratorium during COVID, all that kind of scared people, you know? So mm -hmm. where can I invest my money that's gonna get a better return? Buying a business. And they're looking for a business they can run sort of how a residential property can be run. I'll put my property manager in and collect my rent and that's the end of it. And businesses like that are, are few and far between, you know, my yeah, conversation. I've yet to see many of those, right? I think we'd probably buy them if we could. Yes. <laughs> well, when, they, when, when businesses that even smell a bit like that go on the market, they, they get snapped up yeah. at, at higher prices, higher multiples because they're considered less risky. Right. So, but for, for what the average person's looking for, for their first business purchase, and maybe they don't have a ton of money in the bank and so on and so forth, they think it's very easy to get SBA lending. I try to educate them and give them some tools. Come back to me once you've figured this out. And I've had people come back to me after talking to lenders and really looking at the market and they've readjusted what they're looking for. So that's a that's a great buyer to work with. Yeah. So awesome, awesome advice. I would kind of assume you'd almost say the same thing with a seller. I feel like we covered quite a bit with the with the seller, but did you have any other piece of advice that you would give them? Um, plan for your exit strategy as soon as you possibly can. It is not too early because things happen, you know, not to be negative, but death, illness, needing to move, you know, just being ready for retirement, all those things, anything can pop up and you wouldn't burn your house down when you're ready to move out of it. So why just toss away your business? Yeah, you know, that's a great saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, but not every business is sellable. So you need to educate yourself and talk to a business broker, find out what it takes to make your business sellable, read books on it, read the books the business broker recommends and talk to your accountant. For sure, talk to your accountant about your plan, because if you're coming to me saying, look, I'm ready to sell my business like immediately, I'm going to ask, have you talked to your accountant? Because their strategy with you needs to change when you become, I'm a growing business owner and I want to keep my tax liability down and so on and so forth too. I'm ready to sell. What they're telling you to do should be very, very different. Great, great advice. All right. So I always ask two questions at the end. First one is, do you or have you ever had a mentor? You know, I have a lot of wonderful agents that I work with at, at First Choice, the brokerage here in Las Vegas that I'm with. And um, and I'm able to go to to Jeff and Linda, the owners, and, and so many of my colleagues to bounce ideas off of. And I love that. But as for a, a true mentor that I'm touching base with every day, no, and I think I missed out on a on a good opportunity of probably having that. But I will say when I was in commercial property management and leasing, uh, there was a wonderful uh, leasing agent up in Reno that I worked closely with. His name is Dan Oster. And I had uh, told him at one point, I was, you know, running these buildings, maybe, you know, 1,500 to 3,000 square feet. Dan, when are you going to ditch me and go to the big dogs? You know, you're selling multi-million dollar buildings. What are you wasting your time on me for? And he said, this is what feeds me. These are what come in, you know, all the time throughout the year. If I get rid of this, that's the, the big fish don't come, but once every so often and doing this stuff gets me referrals for the, for the big fish. So I'm taking that mentality uh, to this. It's the smaller businesses 
that typically need my help the most. And I, I never want to consider myself, oh, I'm, I'm too big for, for the smaller ones. No, it's, they're all businesses and they all deserve good attention. Great. Yeah. So last question, what motivates you? What, what makes you want to be successful and work so hard? Oh, well, I, I love people's reactions, you know, and when they realize they can sell their business and what they might be able to do with it. And I love when we get to that, you know, the closing and, and they can move on and do something else. And, or for the buyer, you know, they get to start, a, they get to not start a business from scratch, but step into a successful business. I love that. But beyond that, on a personal level, I love the freedom of being able to do what I, I want to do. And I can do that with this job. I can travel with this and, and, to have that good work-life integration and, and have that in my life coming from an industry where it was much harder to do that, it's a breath of fresh air. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a happy person. Great. Yeah, it's some awesome. Love what I do. Awesome motivation then. Yeah, so this was a, a lot of information. Um, I know people probably are going to have some questions um, or maybe they're, they're ready to sell. How can people find you? Yeah, um, they can give me a call, 702-772-7542. Uh, you can also send me an email, uh, lindsay, and that's lindsay with a Y, L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y, at fcbb.com. And FCBB stands for First Choice Business Brokers. I'd love to be able to help you out. Awesome. Great. Well, hopefully you'll get some calls and We'll feed you with, with big and small deals. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. For more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jarrettwjohnson.com.